welcome listeners to Season 3 of Glam City. If you're listening, it's because you know what glam is. Galleries, libraries, archives and museums. We're going to take you behind the scenes with the people tasked with preserving our culture and give you a sense of what's on in history for Sydney. Today we have a new host. (laughs) Ta-da! Kira Lindsay is a historian at the Australian Centre for Public History and a fellow glam aficionado. Kira, welcome to the Glam Fam. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to learn heaps. Today we want to welcome to the show Heather Goodall. Emeritus Professor and award-winning historian and author. She has explored Australian Indigenous histories, environmental history, migration, decolonisation. She's collaborated on a huge number of research projects with Aboriginal communities in New South Wales and Central Australia and has been a historical researcher into two Royal Commissions, the British Nuclear Testing in Australia and the Black Deaths in Custody. Amazing. Thank you, Anna. That's incredibly generous. And I've been learning from amazing people all the way along. So really, it's just been a great delight being involved in all of those things. It can be amazingly collaborative, can't it? I mean, historians, you think, oh, you're down in the archives by yourself being nerdy and it sort of suits introverted people maybe like myself. But actually, it can be a very outward, engaging, collaborative process? Well, most of the archives that I've looked at, some of them have been down in the basements of weird places, like the National Archives in India, in Delhi, which is is a fascinating place, but it's got quite old-fashioned spaces, and it's cold and damp, and it's hard to find your way around. But I've also been involved with a lot of uh, work, which has been about gathering resources which are paper resources sometimes like archives or images or people's stories in funny places. I've been sitting on the end of people's beds in India, women who were veterans of the women's movement and they had lots of newsletters and lots of papers and they're all in their wardrobes and we were thinking about ways to ensure that people didn't have to feel that they'd lost control of their archives, which are really precious. And so we were scanning them on on people's beds and on people's kitchen tables. And we've continued to do that in Australia. And I've done it in the past in ways that ensures that people don't feel like they've lost control. Heather, your career has been an extraordinary one with such a breadth and depth across it. So as well as working with archives, you've also made a very significant contribution to oral histories. And you've also taken your history and used it in royal commissions. Can you give us a kind of the broad picture of your career, where you've been and what you've done? My career started as an activist. I was at university. I was studying history, but I wasn't employed by a university. I was a teacher for a while at Tranby, an adult education college in Glebe, where political activism was a really important part of the curriculum. That's what all of us who were staff and students did. Our students at Tranby were a very diverse group and some of them had a very strong sense of themselves and their identity. Other people were working their way back into the Aboriginal community. They were coming back. Their families had been part of the stolen generations. They were looking for ways to come back in a little bit at at some remove so it wouldn't be so confronting. We had quite a lot of people who were gay and they were 
often alienated from their own communities. They knew who their communities were, but they, they were in conflict with them. So what they were looking for was a way to understand their Aboriginality and to be proud of it, but not to be able to engage with the broader Aboriginal community and look at more diverse experiences. One of the things that teaching at Tranby helped me to do was not only to sort of clarify my own sense of the narrative that I wanted to tell, but to recognise the diversity of, of the Aboriginal mm. population. And so I was involved as well with uh, working with uh, community organisations, the early political organisations which fought for land rights and which were actually the reason that I was drawn into the doctoral work that I was doing. People I was working with politically said, well, there's a whole lot of old people who've got great stories that we would like recorded and conserved. So I was working with Aboriginal activists whom I'd got to know on the Darling River when I was involved with Aboriginal legal service staff, lawyers and field officers. So my work started off as political work and then the recording I was doing did become part, after a long struggle, of my doctoral work. It wasn't welcomed by the University of Sydney, which didn't like the idea of recording Aboriginal people because really, you know, what did they know? Sydney University had just begun to investigate oral history in their history program and they were recording people who had been staff members in the department and the university and in the university's executive. So they were interested in people who had academic standing or scholarly or cultural cred, really. So the idea of interviewing people in the Aboriginal community who I was working with was an obvious next step, but it wasn't obvious to the supervisory staff that I had at Sydney Uni. So we really have to thank you for that, for pushing the frontiers of that um, particular method within the history discipline. But we also have to thank you for some pretty significant legal changes around those royal commissions you worked in. I was working in teams all the time. I was contributing to teams and I, I got to know lawyers well and I got to know field officers well and community people well and to come to grips with those really difficult problems about what evidence means. So I was I was working with a range of people like that and we understood historical evidence to be contributing knowledge to a provisional idea of what was in the past. So for me, my work has always been a contribution to a conversation. So can you just tell us a little bit about those two Royal Commissions? The first Royal Commission was the Royal Commission into British Nuclear Testing mm. in Australia, which occurred first in 1952 with two blasts off the coast on the Montebello Islands, then with two blasts at Wallatinna near the Freehold Lands in the north of South Australia, and then two big series of atomic bombs going off near Maralinga. But then a whole series of what were called minor trials, which actually involved spilling plutonium all over the desert. It was quite extraordinary amount of contamination that resulted as much from the minor trials as the major explosions. And the, the other one was the Black Deaths in Custody, yeah, is that right? Yeah, I was at that stage working as a historian. I had a job at UTS. I was seconded to the Royal Commission to work in the research in southeastern Australia which drew on my doctoral research, which had been into New South Wales, really, in the period from 1880s through to about 1940. In your work in with Tranby and on the Royal Commission, and you, know, you have a background as an activist, so there's obviously a, you know, a real sense of coming to this history with historical questions, but also questions of justice. 
often public debates around what historians should be and what history should be is take out the emotion, you've got to be removed, you can't be invested. To write good history, you have to be as objective as possible. But you've come into it with this kind of incredible connection and motivation. What sort of historian does that make you and what does what sort of histories does that make you produce? Uh, Henry Reynolds off says that he comes in with a particular motivation and he wants to get things changed. Mm. Um, for mm. him, history is a form of activism. Mm. What is it for you, do you think? Look, for me, I think also history is a form of activism, but I expect that real research is going to involve uncovering things that we don't know. So in a sense, I don't go in with preformed answers. And say my doctoral research, I think that was really important. I came out of a left labor background. I was looking for labor exploitation. I was looking for land theft. I was looking at physical brutality. And in fact, what I found along the Darling River and in many other places, people wanted to talk to me about their lost children. Big story. And and it was something that kept coming up. So it still upsets me. I'm thinking about this in relation to people I know at the moment who've lost track of family forever and who've never been able to find them again. I talked to a range of people who'd had experiences of being taken away in those removal policies. And they'd had really varied experiences. Some of them had had quite good experiences, in fact, and, and you know, got some education and worked with and for people who were quite humane. Other people had appalling experiences. And they were lonely. <laughs> Give me a minute. I, yeah, thank you. Sorry about this. So it's not simply being an activist that has made you interested in history. No, and in fact, a lot of the recent work I've done has not been directly out of my activist background. My interest in history, I think, arose from the ways in which my mother particularly told me stories about her life and about the big events that she was involved in tangentially. I had my mother and my grandmother and my family coming from that Irish background. I mean, it was a long way back, but that's what they regarded as their emotional source. And so I heard stories about the Second World War, which were often about the way that Britain had abandoned Australia and the way Australians had to fight out this war on their own. So for my mother's stories, the real enemies, the Japanese were there and they were terrible, but the real enemy was Britain and the Australians and New Zealanders were fighting the British. And so it was my mother's stories about the Second World War, I think, which really gave me a sense that history was important and it could be a part of the way you organised your life. And it was why I was interested in history. I began working in medicine, actually. I was going to be a doctor. And I, I missed history so much that I shifted faculties and, and became worked with fabulous historians. But... My interest was, as I said, political activism and and I was involved with organisations where I was actually working with grassroots people for whom history was important because for Aboriginal people, like working class people, these stories aren't written down. They're not part of the major textbooks that we learnt at primary school Mm -hmm. and high school. 
these stories are passed along verbally, the way my mother used to tell me. But many of the things I've done recently have been investigating those mythologies that my mother taught me, which were in fact very partial. They were very much centred on a white Australian perspective. They failed to see the impact that these events of the Second World War were having on Indigenous people in Australia, certainly not on the people of the region. You're listening to Glam City on 107.3 2SER. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for us, Glam City. This pod is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS along with 2SER 107.3. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review us on iTunes because it helps people to find us. Today we are listening and talking with historian Heather Goodall, who's had an extraordinary career ranging across local history, community history, Aboriginal history, taught in community colleges and at university here at UTS. So when we think of Indian archives, we think of British administration, we think of warm, musty rooms where records are probably going to deteriorate in the heat. What was it like to go in there, Heather? And how did you negotiate this challenge? Look, there's actually a lot of people, this absolutely marvellous body of Indian historians. The area that I began working in relation with Indian colleagues was environmental history. And so many of them were working with archaeologists and anthropologists. But archives in the Indian archives office, they're predominantly government archives. Um, in, in rather the same way that there are in Australia, but there isn't a strict regime of passing over material. So there is actually a very variable amount of material that comes from the post-independence period, from post-1947. There's a much clearly organised body of material there from the British Raj, but a lot of the important material has been taken back to the UK. So in terms of formal archives, I was really fortunate in being there when Mushirul Hassan was the director of the National Archives, and he was just wonderful. He was very excited about broadening the scope of the archives to look at a range of people. And I was working on um, an Indian journalist, P.R.S. Mani, who'd been embedded with Indian troops in Surabaya, in Indonesia, when the British went in there commanding the Southeast Asian Command to accept Japanese surrender and theoretically bring civil order back. And of course, what they did was they brought back the colonisers. They facilitated the attempt by the Dutch to return to the Netherlands East Indies and they facilitated the French attempt to return to French Indochina. And the British, of course, were clinging for dear life to India in their armed forces were predominantly Indian troops. Imperial yeah, soldiers yeah, to, yeah, imperial to fight soldiers, the colonial, imperial war. Colonial armies who had to turn their guns on Indonesian nationalists. It was a very challenging situation. P.R.S. Mani is a journalist who wrote about this. Now, in terms of Indian archives, the work that I've just put together has been about the end of the Second World War, but it's just a bit after the formal end when white Australians think the war ended. In fact, even for white Australians in prisoner of war camps, it went on, it dragged on, getting people home was difficult. But for people in Southeast Asia and across Asia, there was a much longer period when they were dealing with decolonisation attempts, nationalist movements, the colonisers clinging to power, the Dutch 
trying to get back in and the British trying to facilitate that process, as I said, with a Labor government in Britain, which had its own dilemmas about all of this. So at exactly the same time as the British uh, were commanding Indian troops in Surabaya and PRS Mani was writing about it, and this was what the director of the National Archives in India was trying to get in and got me to uh, have an exhibition there about Mani's work. At exactly the same time, Indonesian independence was such an exciting idea for working-class people and activists around the world, really, but certainly around the region, that there were many Australians very excited about this, and the seafaring boycott was, was being held. So there was a boycott of Dutch shipping right throughout Australian waters, which was initiated by Indonesian seamen who were exiled and um, supported by waterside workers who were Australian and the Australian Seamen's Union. But the seamen, the Laskers, who were manning the ships, which were Dutch, were Indian. So it was the body of Indian seafarers in Australian waters who were really the backbone of that strike. And they're incredibly interesting and important. And what, what I was able to find was their union archives, their records. There is some great work done about uh, Indian seamen in the Northern Hemisphere. Gopalan Balachandran has done brilliant work. But he's had to work from government records and shipping company records there has been very little, which actually was the records of Indian seamen themselves, many of whom were illiterate in English, but there were seamen who were literate and they would scribe for others. This, in the Noel Butlin Archive of Business and Labour in Canberra, was the archive of the Indian Seamen's Union in Australia. Why were they writing? Were they consciously creating their own archive? No, they or were, were they, they just were, corresponding to people? Or They were consciously creating a union. They'd set up a union. The Asian articles were a body of constraints on various seamen from various countries, which had put them in a constrained and, and disadvantaged and exploited situation in terms of the wages of other seafarers, whether they were Arabic seafarers or Chinese seafarers or Indians. So the Asian articles had been set up by the British shipping companies and the British government in the mid-19th century, or earlier than that, actually, with sailing ships, and they constrained people. Now, when there'd been such terrible losses of seafarers in the First World War on dangerous oceans with torpedoes and things, in the Second World War, very early, as soon as war was declared, 1939, you had strikes all over the place as seamen from different countries tried to challenge the Asian articles, demand danger money, demand not to be forced to sail in dangerous waters and things like that. So... There was a very great interest in, un in unions to protect workers and in a place like Australia, there was an interest among Australian unionists in the unionisation and the goals for industrial justice amongst Indian seamen and other seamen. But the union rules were such that you had to be white, you had to be a citizen of Australia to be a member of the union. I mean, it was really, it was a racist definition. But nevertheless, the Maritime Union, the Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers' Union were very, very sympathetic to the Indians and the Chinese and the Indonesian seamen. And they supported them very strongly. And the Indian seamen had been trying to form a union for some years, the big strikes in 1939. And they had 
really good organisation in 1945 when the Indonesians declared that there should be a boycott of Dutch shipping, the Indian seamen, who were the ones on the ships, walked off. So there's lots of walk-offs, and a lot of Australian unionists assisted, as well as Indians who are in Australia. So this is sounding not like an intercolonial network so much as a post-colonial network. It's sort of moving in those hybrid spaces. Can you give us a sense of the voices that you encountered in those archives? What are, the, what are people saying and how are they saying it? These archives that are of the Indian Seamen's Union in Australia are intended to be proper union archives in the sense that there are membership forms, there was a newsletter and people had to fill out the membership forms and choose the language that they wanted their newsletter and their union badge and their, their union uh, membership papers in and talk about which ports they went to and their residential address for things to be sent backwards and forwards to India. So there's quite a lot of information about where they came from, what role, what job they had on these steamships. And the languages are very interesting because some of them are political choices. The choice of Urdu, for example, by a seaman who was Muslim who came from Bengal is quite clearly a political choice. He didn't want Bengali, he wanted Urdu, which was the language of the Islamic nationalist movements at the time. So there are choices like that you can see. You can see where people came from. You can see what the range of uh, origins of the seafarers was. You can see what jobs they had so that you can see the type of industrial exploitation that was occurring on the ships. The Seamen who were literate were the ones who were filling in the membership forms for some of those who weren't. So you've got crosses, you've got thumbprints, you've got extraordinary stuff like that. But you've also got uh, speech drafts that, that people got together when they were giving speeches at various functions. For example, they had a picnic which brought together the Indonesian seamen with the Indian seamen in the strike period as a way to try and bridge the gap. There was one white Australian member of the union, Clary Campbell, who did a bit of scribing and who, who sort of assisted to get the union papers in order. But it was very much about showing that they had a proper union and, and demonstrating that they were in a, in a position of industrial challenge. So they were not only interested in Indonesian independence, they're also interested in getting better conditions. So what are they saying about Indonesian independence? We will not um, support the sending of arms and provisions back to oppress or exploit or control our Indonesian brothers. Many of them, because there's a high proportion of uh, Muslims among the seamen, many of them are saying the nation of, the, of Indonesia has declared its independence. They are a Muslim nation. They are brothers. They're brothers in union organisation and they're brothers in religion. And, and we will not support an attempt for them to be controlled by the Dutch. And is there anything in there about Indian independence and how this Indonesian independence will irrevocably lead to Indian independence? Well, there wasn't a direct sense of the domino effect, if you like. I mean, Indian independence is a given. It's assumed. People make it clear in their speeches that they want Indian independence. They want to be free of the colonisers. There's a very funny example that Rupert Lockwood writes about, actually. The secretary of the Indian Seamen's Union in Australia was Dasrath Singh, and he was known as Danny Singh by the white Australians. In this 
project which um, you've uncovered some you know really diverse archives that are in all sorts of places all over the world. You in turn have produced your own archive as part of this project, an online archive. What sort of materials are in there and what was the motivation for then sort of, you know, um, piffing <laughs> the archive, if you like? I mean, I'm very interested in what archivists today are calling post-custodial archiving. I'm a bit cautious about that term because it sounds like you're out on parole. But other than that, the idea that archivists no longer need to draw in the material records and keep them under lock and key is extremely important for Indigenous people and communities and others who really want to keep control of what they're doing. What we did put online was a body of material that was gathered by this journalist, PRS Marnie, the Indian journalist who was in Surabaya. Now, he was, he was an officer in the Indian Army, commanded by the British in Surabaya till December 45. He left in protest at what the British were doing. He then got a job with the Free Press Journal of Bombay, came back to Indonesia. And so there's two types of writing just there. He collected and carried around with him for a long time the dispatches that he'd sent about Indonesia to his British superiors and as a member of the PR department. And then the next year, the writing that he'd done for the Free Press Journal of Bombay. But he kept a diary as well. So we have selected diary entries for both of those years. The way that I came across these marvellous papers was that the book that he wrote about Indonesia... And I had seen the book in Indonesian and had a researcher translate little bits of it for me about the Indian troops. So I knew there was this material there somewhere. And I inquired on HNET if anybody knew anything about PRS Mani or had written anything or researched him. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And then two years later, out of the blue, I got an email from one of Mani's sons, Indajit. PRS Mani had passed away and his sons were putting up an online memorial for him and they had come across my query. But the exciting thing was that we were able, it was a small enough collection that we were able to digitise it and make it globally available. That's been a very exciting thing and it's a precedent for the work we want to do with the Indian and Australian women who were mm -hmm. veterans of the women's movement in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and that's a really important part of the connection between India and Australia as well as with the we're now grappling with questions around ethics and about what it is that can be made available from the Tranby research and what should be conserved and we're talking with Kirsten Thorpe about ways that we can manage having an ongoing conversation with people about the uh, the Tranby archive. Mm, thank you Heather that brings us to the end of our what an amazing Discussion, what we've covered, the wow. ground we've covered. Miracles of the past, the contingencies <laughs> of the archive. I love those moments of just miraculous discovery. That brings us to the close of Glam City for today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast was made by the Australian Centre for Public History in association with 2SER. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email, glamcity at 2ser.com. Thank you so much to Heather Goodall for being our guest today. It was a wide-ranging and fantastic <laughs> conversation, so we appreciate your time very Thank much. Thank you for having me here. It's lovely. You can find Heather on Twitter. That's at Heather 
586. And we'll see you back here next week for more Glam Conversations. You have to say Glam Out now. Glam Glam out. Out.